Live from the Haymarket Pub and Brewery in downtown Chicago, Illinois, this is Bug House! Let me give you a quick history lesson. History lesson, turn of the last century, it was just as contentious a time politically as it is now. And in Washington Square Park in Chicago, Illinois, revolutionaries, radicals, free thinkers would show up at Washington Square Park and they'd get on their soapboxes and they would debate the issues of the day. Well, they were so bizarre and so loud and so angry that the park became dubbed Bug House Square, which is majority for a mental hospital, because they were nuts. Well, jump cut to like the 50s and 60s, the country was just as polarized. It was incredibly polarized. And so Studs Terkel decided he wanted to revive the Bug House Square debates, and so he did that in Washington Square Park. Jump cut to 2016, you know. Um, we now have another period in our history where we are incredibly polarized. In fact, social media only makes it worse. In fact, we've lost our ability to have a regular disagreement with someone on any kind of terms to such a degree that if I went across the street and made the announcement that Star Wars was originally made for 12-year-old boys, it would only take about 30 seconds before somebody said they were going to fuck me in the eye with a knife. <laughs> over Star Wars. This is where we're at as a society. We don't know how to have a disagreement in a legitimate and civil and not like I'm gonna cut your throat way. So David and I, David is the co-editor of Literate Ape. I am the co-editor of Literate Ape. Literateape.com, look at the banner. <laughs> Exceptionally sexy, thank you. Um, and we decided that we would create a show that was a response to this social situation, a reaction. We were going to try to, in the smallest possible way, create a, a forum where we had debate that was civil, that was entertaining, and eliminated the heat and the fire of ideology. Now, one of the ways you do that is you go back to high school debate. The subtitle of the show is The Art of the dialectic. What you're gonna to see tonight is six writers, three rounds. None of these writers got to choose the topic they're debating. And none of these writers got to choose the side of the topic they're debating. So they may or may not believe in this topic at all. That is not the goal for you to be ideologically pure and enraged. It is can you take a topic that you may even find odious and make a persuasive argument in favor of it. That's the game. And so that's what everybody has to deal with, and that is what you're gonna see. Now you see three rounds. The three rounds in the order that we're gonna see them. The first one, 55 years ago, does anybody know what happened in 55 years ago? 55 years ago, who was suddenly thrust into the world? The Beatles, thank you. And so, 
Joe Jaynes, Lindsay Williams are gonna argue probably the most culturally important question of the day. <laughs> Who is the best Beatle, the most genius Beatle, the most significant Beatle, Paul McCartney or John Lennon? Pete Best. Oh, Pete Best, yeah, yeah. <laughs> the second topic is a little more, and it's a little heady. It's a little academic. Intersectionality. Is it a force of unity or force for division? If you don't know what intersectionality is, you will. I promise. It's, it's pertinent and it's political. And then the third, again, it is February. It is the month of Valentine's and love. The third topic is something we all are familiar with the idea and we wonder what the answer to the question is. If you keep best, was he in fact the best? No. It is dating your type. Is this a road to romance or a road to ruin? David Himmel, Phyllis Porchet will be. I'm not tall enough for this mic. I'm not sure what's going on here. All right. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. But I look around me and I see isn't so. Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. And what's wrong with that? I'd like to know, because here I go, again. Now, I don't need to look up on the internet to see if John Lennon hated this song. I hope he hated that song. I hate this song, even though I have caught myself singing along to it. I've also caught myself singing it when it was only playing in my head. I sang it to my cat while I worked on this piece. The cat hated it. I'm not here to argue that John Lennon wasn't a genius. He was. And I don't want things like heroin addiction, domestic abuse, and adultery, all things that Lindsay apparently condones and appreciates. <laughs> to sully the genius of the man who wrote Imagine. Remember, John Lennon was never as fame-focused as McCartney was. Lennon walked away from the music business for five years when his son Sean was born so he could be there to watch the nanny raise his child. <laughs> I love you. I love you. I love you. I love you. <laughs> Sir Paul McCartney is a singer, composer, poet, writer, artist, humanitarian, entrepreneur, and holder of more than 3,000 copyrights. He is in the Guinness Book of World Records for most records sold, most number one songs, largest paid audience for a solo concert, and most covered song ever. Yesterday. Yesterday has been covered by over 3,000 artists. For most singer-songwriters, yesterday, if they were lucky, would be their peak, and they would be proud to have accomplished just that. 
They would live off the royalties and tour with other bands from the 60s and sing their one-hit wonder until they died. <laughs> McCartney recorded Yesterday in 1965. He wrote it, he sang it, he played guitar on it. He is the only Beatle on the recording. It is purely his. He was 22. If a 22-year-old came to me with lyrics to a song that read, suddenly I'm not half the man I used to be, I'd tell them to shut the fuck up. <laughs> You're not half a man you used to be, you're 22. You're not half a man. <laughs> I could start listing songs he wrote for the Beatles or for himself. I'd include Wings, but that was mostly just Paul McCartney, some musicians, and his wife. But you know most of these songs. I know you know most of these songs. If you were born before the mid-90s, you grew up with them. If you were born in the 90s, you still heard about the Beatles. McCartney's latest album, Egypt Station, debuted at number one on the charts last year, 54 years after recording yesterday. What makes McCartney a genius and the superior Beatle is that he is a songwriting machine always looking for new things to try and new people to work off of. He knows how to stay creative. He has taught songwriting classes and he starts them off by saying, I don't know how to write a song. <laughs> But it's not the I don't know of someone who should just quit. It's the I don't know of a genius who wants to explore and see what happens and experiment and figure shit out. He doesn't wait for inspiration. He hunts it down. Because he's been writing songs since the late 1950s, he still writes songs today. It is near impossible to quantify how many tunes he has penned. His concerts last three hours without an opening act or intermission, and he's still not able to play all his hits in that time. We can certainly say he has written and recorded more than a buttload of songs. <laughs> Easily 10 buttloads. <laughs> 10 thick buttloads. <laughs> and in 10 buttloads worth of material, there's going to be a few clunkers. I love you. I can't explain. The feeling's plain to me. Now can't you see? McCartney is a genius because he knows his strengths and he could easily just repeat formulas he knows works. He's a storyteller who uses songs to convey the whims and passions of many characters. Rocky Raccoon, Lady Madonna, Sergeant Pepper, Maxwell and his Hammer, Desmond, Molly, Magneto and Titanium Man, the inhabitants of Penny Lane, a band on the run, Admiral Halsey, Uncle Albert, and most famously, Eleanor Rigby. Yeah. Yeah. Eleanor Rigby, full of poignant images, wearing the face that she keeps in a jar by the door. It's another McCartney creation. Eleanor Rigby was a hit in 1966, one year after yesterday. Want to know what other songs were hits in 1966? What you'll find are many, many love songs. Some good ones, many silly ones. Eleanor Rigby broke the rules. No Beatle plays an instrument on it. He sings lead and John and George sing backup. Sorry, Ringo. <laughs> it featured a double string quartet and it's about the neglected concerns and fates of the elderly. It's about the neglected concerns and fates of the elderly. <laughs> hey, Paul, what are you working on? Oh, just a little ditty about the neglected concerns and fates of the elderly. Good luck with that. 
you 23-year-old? <laughs> Paul McCartney is not just a factory of hit pop songs and ballads. It's worth noting that the man responsible for Eleanor Rigby also gave us Helter Skelter, a hard rock song so extreme it influenced heavy metal artists and inspired Charles Manson to kill people. Love doesn't come in a minute. Sometimes it doesn't come at all. I only know that when I'm in it, it isn't silly. Love isn't silly. Love isn't silly at all. McCartney wrote more hit songs for the Beatles than any of the, of the other lads. After their manager's death, he became the driving force that kept the band producing. He wrote over half of the Beatles' 200-song catalog. George Martin described him as the one with enough attention span to be in the studio for as long as it took. <laughs> McCartney is not without his faults. In Wings and in the Beatles, bandmates complained that he was more interested in working on his own songs than anything else. Can you name any other member of Wings other than Linda McCartney? Maybe Denny Lane, he's the most famous one, but others left because they felt they had no input and needed to do things Paul's way. <laughs> If you have seen McCartney in concert, you may have noticed that he never introduces his band. Never. Egotistical? Sure. But if I were Paul McCartney, I'd be a much bigger asshole. I'd be ending every sentence I utter with, I'm Paul McCartney. I think he's handling being Paul McCartney very well. <laughs> Lennon wrote many great songs for the Beatles and solo. Most of his post-Yoko work focuses on himself and his family. Even as a Beatle, he wrote the Ballad of John and Yoko. That's fine, it's something McCartney could use more of. I would love to hear an angry rock song about his divorce from Heather Mills. <laughs> Paul's the only Beatle who hasn't overtly written a song about being a Beatle. He suddenly took digs at Lennon on the album Ram, and Lennon hit back with How Do You Sleep? One of the greatest burns in rock history. Maybe that's the difference. Paul writes songs for us. John wrote songs for himself. You'd think that people would have had enough of silly love songs. But I look around me, and I see it isn't so. Oh no. <laughs> Some people want to fill the world with silly love songs. And what's wrong with that? Yeah. Yeah. Right. Joe James, Pro McCartney, and now for the flip side of the coin, ladies and gentlemen, John Lennon, Lindsay Williams. Give her help. This is not a hard question to answer. Who's the better Beatle? Or more importantly, who is the better genius? Lennon or McCartney? So here's my short argument. It's John fucking Lennon! <laughs> Len John Lennon, it's John Lennon. Have you heard of John Lennon? <laughs> yeah, okay. I mean, of course, Paul McCartney is a very nice guy, very talented, but it's John Lennon! First of all, while doing research, I typed in musical genius on Google. 
And guess who was like the fourth person to pop up? <laughs> and guess who was nowhere to be found? It was Paul McCartney. <laughs> <laughs> Lennon even once said, quote, people like me are aware of their genius at 10, nine, eight. I always thought, I, I, always, <laughs> I had always thought, why hadn't anyone discovered me? In school, can't they see that I'm cleverer than anyone else in this school? That the teachers are stupid too? I was different. I was always different. Why didn't anyone notice me? So are my seven minutes up yet, or do I still have to convince you guys? <laughs> so we're asking who's the true genius. Not the best person, not the nicest. For most, well, all of us, we like our geniuses a certain way. They have to be packaged just right, which means imperfectly. Our geniuses have to be fucked up. They can't be friendly or warm people with great childhoods, solid marriages, and good parenting skills. They've got to be egotistical assholes. That's more interesting. Albert Einstein, genius mathematician and scientist who discovered the mass energy equivalence formula. Amazing, right? He also married his first cousin. <laughs> Shakespeare, whose plays were performed more than any other playwright in history, but he also slept with Gwyneth Paltrow. <laughs> geniuses like Michael Jackson, big weirdo. I mean, I feel like I don't need to elaborate on that one. Uh, another performer you may know, let's call him Phil Fosby, uh, kind of a comedy genius back in the day, but in real life, a piece of shit. <laughs> and then take me for example. I mean, some people have said that I'm a comedy genius. And oh yeah, somebody in the back said beautiful, thank you. <laughs> thank you so much. But I can't be called a genius. I'm a white woman from Texas who loves to shop at the Gap and my biggest struggle is choosing an Instagram filter that's not Mayfair, but like still emphasizes color really well. <laughs> so let's look at John Lennon. He seems to fit that genius mold perfectly. Dad basically abandoned him when he was a baby. His mom was hit and killed by a car when he was a teenager. He also didn't have the most stable marriage and wasn't exactly dad of the year. He treated his first wife horribly, played a concert the night of his wedding, and didn't even see his first son until three days after he was born because he was on tour. <laughs> He once claimed that the Beatles were bigger than Jesus. Jesus. Who does that? But I mean, they sort of were. <laughs> Another qualification, he died too soon. Doesn't that always push up someone's status as a genius slash legend? Yeah. Mm. And who wins award after they die? Hello. So I've told you about all these qualifications that make John Lennon a genius in sort of a Wikipedia definition kind of way. But based on his music, how is he a genius? Well, besides the fact that he's John fucking Lennon, uh, I did my research to find out what songs Lennon wrote alone while with the Beatles, and even though credit was given to Lennon-McCartney. The main difference between these two was not how many songs they wrote, but what they wrote about, and specifically when they started their solo careers. While McCartney mostly wrote upbeat, fun songs and love songs, the music was almost what Lennon called, quote, granny music. In opposition to that, Lennon's songs really grabbed you. They meant something personal to him, and they meant something personal to the people that listened to them. He had a way of piecing together honest lyrics, and some that came from the heart, and some that came from an acid trip, but they all somehow came together and made sense. McCartney may have been the fun-loving Beatle, but Lennon was the troubled emotional one, and that's what I identify with most. Songs he alone wrote by himself Come Together, Norwegian Wood, I Am the Walrus, Imagine, Beautiful Boy, Instant Karma, In My Life. Well, In My Life was sort of ruined for me because it was the song used in our senior video. 
so now whenever I hear it, all I see are pictures in my head of my classmates' uh, baby pics. <laughs> Uh, now, I could stand here and read you song lyrics, which you already know and have known for a long time. <laughs> so I will. <laughs> uh, Nowhere Man was a song I discovered along with all of Rubber Soul later in high school. He's a real nowhere man sitting in his nowhere land, making all his nowhere plans for nobody. Doesn't have a point of view, knows not where he's going to. Isn't he a bit like you and me? Which, side note, kind of reminds me of Shel Silverstein. Isn't that something we can all relate to at so many points in our lives? Like feeling lost? Like when you graduate high school, graduate college, or move from Dallas to Chicago to take improv classes and become a famous improviser? <laughs> Lyndon also wrote Strawberry Fields Forever. Ever heard of it? <laughs> <laughs> because it changed my life. It really did. I became obsessed with it in college, this sort of mesmerizing, psychedelic song that conjures up all kinds of emotions and creates this strange, fun landscape taking us back to our childhoods. He based Strawberry Fields on a neighborhood garden in London in the 1950s, but it somehow reminds me of my own childhood in Texas. Imagine is a great example of how incredibly timeless his songs are. In a weird way, it made me think about this time that I didn't really know about that happened before I was born. A time during and after Vietnam when my parents were almost grown-ups but still finding their way. And hearing it as an adult makes me think about the past and the future, and the present a little bit. Now, I'm not going to read more lyrics from another song, except that I will. <laughs> <laughs> Imagine there's no countries, it isn't hard to do. Nothing to kill or die for, and no religion too. Imagine all the people living life in peace. Unrealistic? Yeah. Hopeful? Sure. Sadly, I think the genius of Lennon's music, especially during his solo career, was easily, easily overshadowed by his hippie attitude. Public protests, of de uh, public protests of war or dealing with President Nixon trying to kick him out of the US. Sometimes a celebrity's point of view, political views, religious views, they form a cloud over their work, no matter how, how amazing it is. But Lennon was always able to inject his opinions, emotions, hopes, wishes, dreams into his songs with great ease. And isn't that really what music is all about? Some have also done this successfully, but not in the poetic way that Lennon could, and not in the way that he could make the lyrics last for decades. Imagine was written almost 50 years ago, and it still stands as a beacon of hope during the shitty times. I say this statement with no embarrassment, because I'm a person who basically uses music as therapy. I'd like to close with a quote from Sir Paul McCartney. <laughs> Once John gave me a compliment. Once in a long, long time. I think it was Revolver, Here, There, and Everywhere, was one of my songs on it. And John, just when we finished, said, that's a really good song, lad. I love that song. And I was like, yes, he likes it. And I've remembered it to this day. It's pathetic, really. Thank you. <laughs> McCartney, Lindsay Williams for John Lennon. And now we turn to our oligarch, Adam Webster, who wins the round? I'm gonna go with Joe. Joe, Paul McCartney, give him a hand! 
Mike's going to stay here in Chicago and I'm going to be going to Vegas. It will be a, a two-city operation. Yeah. In fact, huh? bi-city, bi-coastal, whatever you want to call it. Bisexual, rock on. Um, um, I will also tell you that Bug House will continue here the first Monday of every month. David will be running it. Boom. Um, in addition, starting April 9th at the Bunkhouse Theater in Old Las Vegas, we will Bunkhouse be... Saloon. Bug, Bunkhouse Saloon. We will be uh, starting Bug House in Vegas. So we'll have two Bug Houses, also bisexual. Yes! Yes! This is Don Hall's final Bug House performance, whereupon four things will happen. One, he will obliterate himself on bourbon after the show. I will assist. <laughs> Two, he will reenact an obscure rite of passage prescribed by Hunter S. Thompson to seal himself into a tiny, tiny little car with nothing more than 16 ounces of pipe tobacco four rounds of beef jerky, and six large bags of corn chips for 27 hours. Three, he will shed the skin and scales of 30 years in Chicago and migrate west to sun himself on warmer rocks, to become entangled with enormous cacti, and hunt new and interesting insects in what the pesticide maker DuPont calls their greatest glass cage test lab in the world, Las Vegas. <laughs> and number four, he will unceremoniously but predictably return to Chicago in last-minute trips to cram months of authentic, coherent, and non-riddling-driven conversations into mere days. <laughs> we can both shed a tear and applaud that he's departing Chicago because, well, we're complex human beings with often contradictory thoughts. Sadness, admiration, and celebration are not mutually exclusive feelings. Welcome to Bug House 17, also known as John Can't Lose Night. <laughs> by, the way, by the way, the guy in black wearing glasses, he wins. <clears throat> I've been actively writing and telling stories for about a year and a half. I'm a smart, nice guy, but I don't have 30 years of performing, hosting, announcing, storytelling, and arguing on stage in the back pocket of these very fashionable jeans. <laughs> I have neither the resonating Bill Curtis voice, the bombastic phrasing of a barely lucid Lewis, Lewis Black, nor the expectation that I will win. Either I beat Don outright because I have a better argument, or I am merely the hapless, go out as a winner, Mayan sacrifice, <laughs> slaughtered at the altar of Kiichi to ensure that my blood offering is a potent source of nourishment for David Himmel in the months to come. In the ordinary course of business, Don and David enroll participants, select topics, and assign speakers to a side. 
participants do their best, and it's sometimes entertaining to watch someone argue a position with which they do not agree. We've departed slightly from here, the norm here to debate intersectionality, a great unifier or devastating divider. I am arguing that intersectionality is a great unifier. While Don regurgitates often contradictory content from no less than 40 article he has written on identity, rage profiteers, call-out speech, public shaming, and intersectionality on Literate to argue the opposite. <laughs> I refer specifically to his deeply flawed when intersectionality runs amok, the underlying misunderstanding that is fracturing society, in which he conveniently shifts the goalposts, propagates misleading definitions, distorts assumptions, and flop sweats false generalizations. <laughs> Reading past the angry, poor me, picked on white guy shtick, Everything Don has and will say is going to boil down to one central logical fallacy. Every attribute and characteristic that you were born with, inherited, or adopted means that you can only collaborate, affiliate, or communicate with people that 100% match your attributes and characteristics. No additional traits, none missing. The more attributes and characteristics you have, the smaller the pool of people shrinks to. You're condemned to an endless interscene warfare with other attributes and characteristics over the inherent purity and goodness of their competing point of view. Finally, parsing and splintering means no one can gain enough momentum to make a difference or get anything done. All of this rolls up into a giant straw man argument something he can easily knock down, set aflame, and surround to recreate the tribal dances of Lord of the Flies. <laughs> it's a perfect, unattainable purity requirement that even Don does not believe in. Let's be clear about what's inarguable. Climate change is real. Injustice exists. On the latter, right now, we're discussing whether a tool to fight injustice inherently creates unwanted consequences. Since Don doesn't really understand, I will explain. Intersectionality is about point of view. Knowing that you have a point of view, knowing how your life and experiences inform that point of view in sometimes complementary and contradictory ways. Knowing that not everyone is the same. Recognizing those other points of view and understanding those other points of view are just as valid. Intersectionality is a process of curiosity, discovery, and learning. Owning your blessings and your curses. Celebrating the blessings and acknowledging the curses of others. Neither putting others on a pedestal nor condemning them. 
and then working with others to alter the shared landscape that fosters dignity and self-determination for everyone. How does me being a white, male, tall, cisgendered, gray-haired, college-educated, hearing-impaired nerd inform my point of view? <laughs> How is that different from other people? What can I offer others? What prevents me from working with others? I don't look at these attributes independently, but how they influence and reinforce one another. Intersectionality is about living a life of self-awareness, humility, kindness, and compassion. First, and then figuring out how to address injustice. It's neither paralysis nor punitive. It's not a ploy to wear a cloak of elevated victimhood. It's not a process to dismiss or bully different points of view. It's not a trick to trump my pain over your pain. It's not a method to reverse the polarity of the oppressor and the oppressed. I understand that the term intersectionality can be misused by human beings, being as flawed as we are. But that's neither the intent nor the definition. And if we know anything about Don's writing, intent and content is what should count. Reducing and transforming intersectionality's criticism over persistent and historic injustice into merely arguments about identity and inclusion is intentionally misleading. For Don and the flaming anti-PC, identity is the root of all evil crowd. Rigidity, fear, conflict, and condemnation are required, endless, and insurmountable. Because that's what they know from a system built on gender, racial, sexual, wealth, and religious inequality. It's a point of view reflective of a system built to ensure power by the few over the many. That he'll use isolated instances where intersectionality was misused does not inform the whole. It's a convenient change the definition over generalization, but still cheap. What's a hammer? Don sees a hammer as a tool of destruction. Sure, we can demolish walls with it, but as design, the hammer is a tool of construction. Intersectionality is a tool designed to unify and foster justice by knowing your point of view and the point of view of those around you. Dave Chappelle has said, quote, our culture has accepted two huge lies. The first is that if you disagree with someone's lifestyle, you must fear or hate them. The second is that to love someone means you must agree with everything they believe, say, or do. Both are nonsense. You don't have to compromise convictions to be compassionate, unquote. Let's tweak this quote. Don's argument is predicated upon two huge lies. The first is, if you're in any way different from someone, you must fear or hate them. The second is 
that to work with anyone to create a better shared future, you must be in perfect alignment with every attribute of their being. This is nonsense. You don't have to sacrifice yourself or others to combat injustice. Your awareness, understanding, and embrace of yourself and others will create the momentum that unifies us. It's unfortunate that John Kapal doesn't actually know what intersectionality is and boils it down to religious-toned ideology. It has nothing to do with feeling good or learning your perspective. That's not what it is, and that's not what it's become. Democracy is a tool to boost the voices of those governed to fully reflect the will of its citizens. In the best cases, it does just that. In the worst cases, it is used by one party or another to limit the voices of some citizens, tearing them down and excluding them as a power grab. See the GOP voter restriction laws of the southern states or anything even tenuously attached to Scott Walker for examples of the worst cases in using democracy. On January 21st, 2017, the March for Women was among the largest mass protest in history. It was historic. It was wide-reaching. It was democracy in its best case. Two, year, two years later, not so much so. Significantly smaller protest. Was it that Trump had grown into the presidency? That, that he'd walked back his previous statements concerning the treatment of women, become a head of state that women could stomach? No, no. It was a fracturing of purpose and personnel at the very top of a sudden national organization and an allegiance to intersectional thought that did it in hashtag Farrakhan. A friend of mine was in the early organizing of the Chicago March in 2017. She had nearly had a nervous breakdown and eventually gave up as the March for Women underwent online attacks from increasingly marginalized groups and individuals claiming that without space and control from black women and queer women and disabled women and trans women and obese women and anti-cop women, then the march was not legit. Plainly stated, the idea of an overarching movement for women became a power grab from every intersectional ideology in existence. Now let's talk about what intersectionality actually is, John, because it's not Let's put it this way. Your version of intersectionality is sort of the I.O. version of improv. <laughs> you know, it's the group fucking mind. Do your zen. No, no. Improv is about skill. So, Professor Kimberly Crenshaw, her work in the late 1980s introduced the term intersectionality. Intersectionality meant, at that time, by the person who created the term, that the experience of a person who belongs to multiple, multiple identity groups cannot be captured simply by focusing on subordination based on one 
or the other identity or even by adding them together. According to a 1993 Standard Law Review article, quote, experiences of women of color are frequently the product of intersecting patterns of racism and sexism, and these experiences tend not to be represented within the discourses of either feminism or anti-racism. One of Crenshaw's examples is an immigrant woman whose legal status depends on her relationship to a battering husband, and it does not simply experience, she does not simply experience anti-immigration prejudice or sexist battering. Her statuses as an immigrant and a woman intersect to create a distinctive vulnerability. Consider an analogy to traffic in an intersection, coming and going in all four directions. Discrimination, like traffic through the intersection, may flow in one direction, it might flow in the other direction. If an accident happens in an intersection, it can be caused by cars traveling from any number of directions, and sometimes from all of them. Similarly, if a black woman is harmed because she is in the intersection, her injury could result from sex discrimination or race discrimination or both. Hence, intersectionality. This is a solid idea and has merit. His two lies that my argument are based on are completely false and not at all my argument. The face of limited false ideology based on the supremacy of one race over others, well, it had the potential intersectionality to begin the process of evening the playing field. But like democracy, capitalism, socialism, communism, and a whole host of on paper good ideas, the concept of intersectionality has become weaponized as a power grab. As the marginalized continue to grow in grievances, the intersections in the traffic analogy become overwhelming with the idea that the more intersections of discrimination, the more worthy the victim is of attention and deference. Try to turn left on Milwaukee, North, and Damon, and now imagine that clusterfuck multiplied by six more directions, and you kind of get the idea. <laughs> Thus begins two notions of intersectionality. That of discrimination, which was where it was based, and that of oppression, which is what it's developed into. The first, it's helpful, a tool used to identify and legislate to help the most marginalized among us. The second begets the Olympiad of victim status. With discrimination, we see intersecting barriers to progress. With oppression, we assign value to those most aligned, maligned and create a superficial, simplified picture of the oppressor and the oppressed. A white woman is not as valued in this contest as a black woman. A black woman is less worthy than a queer black woman. A queer black woman has less right to speak than a queer black transgender woman had a disability or a weight problem or a religion and the number of intersections increase in her oppression. The tool is being used to create a new hierarchy rather than merely dismantling the faulty old one. This idea is becoming so pervasive that when I mentioned to Joe James that John and I were debating this, Joe, an educated college teacher, said, oh, two white guys debating, that should be interesting. <laughs> the inference is that because John and I are not black Palestinian lesbians, lesbians with leg braces, our perspective on the concept of intersectionality is of less value, less worthy of note, less. 
no context for individuality, no perspective on the amount of research or ability to discuss the topic. We're white, cisgender, straight, middle-aged men, and so we cannot possibly have an opinion valuable enough to truly consider. In other words, no heckling. In other words, the root of the idea of intersectionality was both specific and complex, but the newer popular version centers on a single villainous umbrella that all subordination can point a finger to as its cause. That cause, John Capal, and me, and Joe, and David, and Peter, and Adam, and John, and George. In other words, the root, I already said that, the modern, in this world, modern feminism becomes less about working to change the systemic inequities women face daily and more about centering outrage on white men who manspread and mansplain and proliferating the notion that white men are all predators. Modern civil rights becomes less about working to change the systemic and institutional racism baked into the American experiment and more on exaggerating the harm of microaggressions and the separatist need for safe spaces in the best cases. The concept of intersectionality is a tool to boost those who have multiple identifiers and expand our notions of who is sitting and gets to sit at the big table of society. In the worst cases, it is a tool to tear down those deemed culturally inferior in a new paradigm. In either case, it is a tool rather than an ideology. It has evolved from an academic theory to a weapon. Intersectionality has become a mirror image of another ideology that claims the superiority of one race over another, but supplanting race with oppression. And we pretty much already know how fealty to that historically false supremacy and the resulting ideology turned out. Thank you. Start or end with that one. <laughs> All right, Adam. Intersectionality. Is it unifier? Is it a division creator? Pick the white guy. Oh. <laughs> <laughs> the black guy in black with glasses. There you go. I'm going to go with Don. All right, thank you. Well done. A great American romance is assured and is yours for the taking when you date or commit to the person who's your type. It eliminates that middle of the night phone call to your best friend that starts before she can even say hello with you shrieking, girl, you are not gonna believe what this motherfucker did to me. <laughs> You, and you won't spend the rest of that night parsing his behavior and plotting revenge, which is usually nothing short of keying his car or putting sugar in his gas tank, because bitches be tripping. 
<laughs> I spent an evening with a friend who angrily drove from Fullerton to Howard, from Lakeshore Drive to Harlem Avenue, looking for her boyfriend's car so she could bust his windshield. <laughs> My job was to slip behind the wheel while she did the deed and then speed away when she was done. Unfortunately, or fortunately, uh, depending on your viewpoint, we didn't find it, and I spent most of the ride trying to talk her out of it. <laughs> Ideally, the person who's your type should also have the same blood type, RH factor, and be a tissue, do a tissue match in case, as your committed relationship progresses, he or she can donate all or part of the organ you may need. <laughs> and of course, you would do the same. But it's kind of hard to get somebody to submit to a full battery of diagnostic testing during that first month or so that you're together. <laughs> so we'll move on to more mundane matching methods. So first, you figure out what your type is, what attributes he or she should have. This can be a challenge because in the word, words of that great philosopher, Chris Rock, when you meet somebody for the first time, you're not meeting them, you're meeting their representative. <laughs> that means you've got to break through all those practice table manners and that hastily relearned good behavior until you find the real person inside. You know, the guy who eats everything with his hands, mashed potatoes included, or who after sex thinks you're supposed to be cuddling, instead <laughs> farts, then forces your head under the blanket. <laughs> See, that's some shit you want to find out sooner rather than later. Unless, of course, that's your, your thing. If so, have at it. The search can be daunting because nothing is foolproof. Because according to yet another great philosopher, Murphy, it is impossible to make anything foolproof because fools are so ingenious. Herewith are the steps and cautions needed to first find your type and then walk hand in hand into that magical, enchanted land called romance. Now, from the time I was 16, I'd made lists that included physical, emotional, electrical, uh, electrical, intellectual, <laughs> maybe electrical, <laughs> intellectual, and yes, sexual attributes my man should have. As I got older, I included kitchen and bathroom behavior as well. <laughs> as in, babe, I love you, but please, please close the bathroom door when you're in there. I'm grateful for two things about those lists. One, is I have no idea where they are anymore. And two, that I never married anyone who met those requirements. Seriously, between age 16 and mm, last week, I really had no idea who I was, let alone what type of man I saw myself with for the rest of my life. But I did manage to scratch out a few items just for you tonight. Fair warning, this list is long primarily because I have unfortunately spent too much time, romantic currency, and actual currency on men who were not my type. <laughs> Number one, he must be tall, at least four inches taller than me. I have nothing against short men. Okay, yeah, I do, but <laughs> I used to be five foot seven. But age, aging and spinal compression 
have reduced me to a frightening five foot five and a half. And while I'm happy now that my jeans do cover the tops of my shoes, I never want to be mistaken for somebody's mother just because I have gray hair and I'm short. And that actually happened at a friend's graduation. Yeah. Two, he must be age appropriate. There is nothing wrong with younger guys, but he, if he still has at least one baby tooth or still displays a framed photo of him from his senior palm in his apartment, I'm too old for him. Three, he needs to be employed full-time with benefits. Do I need to say any more? Yes, and don't worry, I will. If divorced, he may not refer to his ex-wife as bitch, harpy, hoe, or soul-sucking leech. <laughs> if he has kids, they are well-behaved, and I hear stories about them, and I see their school pictures a long time before I ever breathe the same air as them. <laughs> Employed. Oh, wait, I said that already. Um, <laughs> So you loan a man $6,000 and get nothing but excuses about a settlement that he has coming from a lawsuit in the future. And surprisingly, the two times a year that you ask about it, he shrugs his shoulders and says, I don't know. My lawyer hasn't called me back. Uh-huh, right. He has his own car in good condition and can afford to put gas in it. Because seriously, Mr. $6,000, bought a luxury automobile, then could not afford the more than $100 a tank full of premium gas it took to fill that bitch up. <laughs> Hence the six grand. Thankfully, not all at once, but over a ridiculously long period of time. Seven, he needs to be self-sufficient, i.e. has a savings account with money in it, because there are the ones who have just the account. <laughs> <laughs> and a retirement plan that has nothing to do with purchasing Powerball tickets, i.e. Mr. 6,000. <laughs> Refer to points two, five, and seven. <laughs> He's not shady. He, he doesn't slip items into your shopping cart and just assumes that you're gonna pay for them. <laughs> also does not use the tax letter from the church or the nonprofit that he volunteers at to buy his groceries. Nine. Yeah. He needs to be strong enough to help, if not pick me up. Because I'm a little unsteady on my feet, especially in the winter, and a man needs muscles, and he shouldn't be scared to use them. He needs to be proficient with a firearm. Because <laughs> there is nothing sexier than a man with a concealed carry permit, a shoulder holster, and an automatic weapon. <laughs> who can and will blow a motherfucker out of his Timberlands just to protect his woman. Yes! Such men have a swagger in their walk that just really works for me. <laughs> 11, he doesn't see watching television as a sign of personal or intellectual weakness, because I don't give up law and order for anybody. 12, he's considerate in that he asks me if I want any before he finishes the last of the cookie dough ice cream. 
13. <laughs> he is not a workout junkie. I will work out if I have to. Like when my doctor told me 20 years ago, you better get some exercise and lose 30 pounds or you'll be dead in 10 years. Ha. <laughs> he looks great in a suit. Because you never know when you need somebody to accompany you to a work function, a wedding, or a funeral. One of my uncles died, this was a while ago, and my aunt, the dead uncle's sister-in-law, said to me with just a little too much venom in her voice, oh, where's your date? Stupid me, I didn't know burying my dad's brother was a couple's event. <laughs> that he believes in God, but is not fanatical. If he does a quick sign of the cross when he hears a siren, that's really enough for me because they go off about every 30 to 60 seconds in this city. <laughs> he also, number 16, he needs to be compatible with the Myers-Briggs INTJ. <laughs> and for those of you unfamiliar, that is introverted, intuitive, Judge, thinking, judging woman. I'm sure that there is some four-letter combination that's my perfect match. But after all that critical thinking and answering those hundred questions, I was just too tired to find him. So I skipped that page. And <laughs> because I think a man who is compatible should be able to contact his inner nerd, as I did, and go on that website and find it. 17. He can't remember anything about his exes because now that he's with me, they faded from memory. <laughs> 18, he likes to hold hands and doesn't drop mine when he sees an attractive woman up ahead. <laughs> it happened. Whoa. Knows that a true romantic setting for the night we first have sex is more than lighting a scented candle from Pier 1, playing a Jeffrey Osborne CD, and serving me soggy pizza that he warmed up in the microwave. <laughs> 20, he is not afraid of surprises. One guy told me he hated them because one of his exes likes to surprise him with shit that he hated. For that one, refer back to number 16. 21, tells me I'm beautiful even when I'm not. Knows his, 22, knows his way around my body, doesn't need me to verbally map quest him. Down, a little to the right. No, not your right, my right. <laughs> to find my clitoris, then he knows what to do once he finds it. <laughs> 23, knows that romance is not something you only do on the weekend when you have time. It's the little things, like flushing the goddamn toilet when he's finished, or buying another quart of cookie dough ice cream on the way home because he knows the one in our freezer only has about a mouthful of ice cream left in it. And finally, 24, he makes me laugh. This guy is out there somewhere, and I know because I have found elements of him in other men, just not all of them in one man. So. Finally, in the words of yet another great philosopher, Peter Pan, <laughs> I say it, I say it, and I believe it. He does exist, he does exist, and he's out there looking for me. Thank you. I feel that I discovered that if I want to make it with Phyllis, I'm going to go buy some cookie dough ice cream. 
I also discovered that whatever you said, Phyllis, must have really made an impact on David and Katie, because throughout the things, your, your list, David and Katie are going, at each other. And it wasn't just David going, I'm sorry. It was like both of them going, I, I, I. So there's some nerves hit just in this area. Ladies and gentlemen, to argue that dating your type is the road to ruin David Himmel. Yeah, that was hard. That was hard to hear. I mean, just last night we were at Target and I snuck something in the, in the cart. <laughs> I mean, it, it was for our kid, but still, I was like, but it's it's special treat. And I, I said, I was like, what, like three times? She's like, just fucking put it in, it's fine. Which is how we got the kid. Also, once again, just, <laughs> and I just want to say once again, happy birthday to my mother. Who's here tonight? Uh, all right, so yeah, so okay, so let me just, let me tell you something about my wife. And my wife, no. Um, that's still funny, right? That's still a funny thing people do. <clears throat> that's what she said, all right. Okay, so my wife is, I can't even fucking say without hearing this stupid thing, all right. My wife is kind. She is, she is kind. She has a solid track record of, of high quality attractiveness. She's funny. <laughs> that that, that wasn't the joke. Yeah, okay. So she's funny. Um, she's curious. She's well read. My wife is not my type. <laughs> when I was single, friends would ask me, they would insist on setting me up with somebody and they'd ask me, David, what's your type? And I would always respond the same way. Um, someone who's emotionally dead with a propensity to gain weight. That's what I'm looking for. <laughs> Thing is, it's important to note that I wasn't really looking for that. This is not what I wanted in a mate. It's, it's just that that was the glaring similarity between a good number of my studies. Besides that, you'd be hard pressed to find any other similarities between them. Like, I never stuck to a script of physical features. Uh, you know, brunette, athletic, between five feet and five foot one inch, five seven, you know, whatever. <laughs> Two boobs and a, and, a, and a butt for pooping and to eat off of. <laughs> the thing is, type. Yummy, it's yummy. Type is not a good job. It's not even a bad job. Type, it, it they don't come from a good family. Type is not kind to others. All of these things are subjective and fleeting. And to say that I wanted someone who was fun, kind, likes music and adventure, it's just to say, it's just me really saying that I don't want someone who's a fucking bore and an asshole. <laughs> Defining a type is difficult, which is exactly why dating your type is the well-paved road to ruin. Dating your type, whatever you think it is, is the equivalent of never stepping out of your comfort zone. It's never attempting to try even the slightest new thing, like, like pecans, which, which you hated all your life until like 
two weeks ago when I was like, oh shit, these things aren't bad. <laughs> or, you know, like being pegged by a demented geriatric. Uh. <laughs> try things. Oh, 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 try it. <laughs> it's refusing, sticking your type is refusing to experience the broader strokes of life and putting yourself in a position to learn new things about your world and possibly your own self. If you're the kind of person who exclusively dates their type, you shouldn't need a passport. Because, what, are you, are you really going to travel? Like, like, really? Like, travel to a different country, really? Like, going to Mexico or Italy and staying in an all-inclusive resort to do nothing more than sit by the pool and drink blended drinks? That's not traveling. That does not count as legitimate international travel. You can do that exact same thing in an Airbnb in New Buffalo, Michigan. It's an hour and a half away. It's fucking quicker to get there than Schaumburg. Years ago, years ago when I was single, I went on a handful of dates with a girl. We'll call her Tracy, because that was the name her parents gave her. And she was fine. She was interesting and cute enough. Uh, she seemed to think I was interesting and cute enough. And we kissed once. But we didn't get bonkers for each other, you know? And it, it's, it, it happens. It's, it, you know, no hard feelings, no big deal. One of our conversations revolved around dating in our 30s. I was a week older than she was. I, I probably still am. I don't know. I haven't talked to her in a while, but I'm assuming. <laughs> So she was 31 at the time, and, and, I, and, and she was in a bit of a hurry to get married because biological clocks and wrinkles or whatever, whatever, right? Sexism, I guess? I don't know. Um, so, she, so she calls me, and uh, it's, it was a Saturday night, and she calls me, and I was, I was at home alone. Um, I, was, I was watching TV. I was eating frozen pizza, drinking scotch, uh, having the best fucking night of my life, right? <laughs> And Tracy called. And she'd been drinking out with her, with her friends for hours at River North Bars, bouncing around from River North Bars. So you can imagine the, the condition she was in. So I answer the phone. I'm like, ah, drunk chick. OK, cool. Uh, she goes, David, this isn't going to work between us. I go, OK. <laughs> OK. I think you're great. You're cute and funny, but, um, but we have fun, but like, I go, yeah, no, Tracy, it's fine. It's, it's, it's fine. It's cool. I mean, I like you, but you're just not my type. <laughs> really? Well, Tracy, how's your type working out for you? What? Like, how's your type working out for you? Because you have all these issues with, you know, like you haven't gotten married yet, yet you keep dating the same guys, and the one guy who's a little different, you don't want to date him anymore because he's not the guy that you've been failing with? How's that where she's like, we're not going to date. I go, I don't fucking want to. It's fine. Look, I got to go. It's, it's, there's another episode of Walking Dead on the DVR I got to watch. I got to go. Bye. <laughs> and that was it. That was the end of it. It was fine. And um, she ended up getting married. She's got two kids now, I think. I don't, I, like, I, I don't keep up with her that much. Um, I have no idea where her husband sits on her type spectrum. So here's the thing. Uh, it, it's attributed to Einstein, but it hasn't been proven that he said this, but that the definition of insanity is doing the same thing over and over again and expecting a different result. That doesn't matter whether Einstein said it or not. The sentiment is true. By dating your type and only your type, 
The odds are stacked against you finding any success because you're barreling down a trail littered with failure, protruding roots, hungry wolves, and horny woodsmen with axes to grind. Sure. There's a chance you could strike gold after mining the same patch of land and river to near exhaustion. A roulette wheel in Las Vegas where Donna's gonna go and die. <laughs> Dude, you're 53. <laughs> I don't want you to die, I'm just saying. It's a, like, we're all gonna die, everyone's gonna... All right, so... A roulette wheel gives you 35 to 1 odds. That means if you stand at the table and bet on four, the number four over and over and over again, and only four, never anything else, you will win once every 35 times, maybe. Maybe. It's a 2.6% chance. Would anybody in here make a bet like that? <laughs> Carrie, you would? How much money do I have to start with? <laughs> Exactly. Right. Okay. Yeah. Shut up, Arthur. So, <laughs> all right. So it's but it's a. I mean, it's a, it's a it's a bad bet, arguably, right? Yeah. Yes. Okay. Yes. Thank you, AJ. All right. So, thing is, the odds increase dramatically as you begin to play space with a larger variety. Now, four is my type of number, but I never put my money on four and only four. That is not to say, or this is not to say, that you should abandon your idea of what you want out of a partner. Like, don't set out to date a hateful Chicago cop or a federal judge with a tattoo of Coldplay lyrics just because you're tired of not being happy in love. <laughs> the point is to adjust, be open-minded, give, give different people with different tastes and family histories and upbringings and body types a chance. If you open your mind and heart to stretch beyond what you think you already know, you'll likely find the catch you were always hoping for but never knew existed. As for me, what my type is now, I'll tell you that my type is Katie. My wife. <laughs> she is. Now we have different views on many things. Uh, we had drastically different upbringings and we strongly, strongly disagree on the merits of the Rachel Maddow show. <laughs> but, even, even with, <laughs> even with these, does anybody have a couch that I could sleep on? <laughs> no, our couch is great. We agree on furniture, that's a thing, right? <laughs> Sure. All right. So, but even with these big bumps in the, in, the, in, in the road over the last almost seven years we've been together, if Katie were my type, I'd have long ago veered off that road, jackknifed on fire into a ditch. But because I haven't, it's apparent that she's not my type, but we're exactly the type of people for each other that we should be. That's it, thanks. Yeah! I love you, Katie. Happy birthday, man. All right, Phyllis Perchet with Date Your Type. Find your type, define your type. He's out there. Or, 
don't date your type, and you might get Katie Himmel. So, that's, I mean, that's the sum of that argument. Am I right? Am I right? Yeah. So, Adam, who made the most persuasion for you? Who had the best argument? My marriage is writing on this. It's really not. The, the, our ape cast is really, really destroying his marriage. So. I don't know if I would be writing on that. I'm going to go with Phyllis. Phyllis wins the vote!